Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by us, the Fried Egg. Go to proshop.thefriedegg.com. That is uh, where we sell things. We've got lots of stuff on there. We've got uh, some good merchandise, pullovers, uh, polos, t-shirts. We also have our photography up there. That's a great place to purchase uh, golf photos of of courses that you might want to, you know, remember for your office, for your house, for your man cave, for your living room, wherever it may be. Go to proshop.thefriedegg.com and uh, you can support our little podcast website newsletter there. Today's episode is with Wayne Morrison. Wayne Morrison is the, uh, I guess, the country's uh, most prominent William Flynn expert. So who's William Flynn? He's a golf architect. He designed a little course called Shinnecock Hills, you may have heard of, uh, as well as many others in the golden age. So we dove in and talked all things William Flynn. We talked about Wayne's book, The Nature Faker. If you are a member of a Flynn course or a William Flynn fanatic, you should check this book out. It's got basically a treasure trove of information. And uh, he talks about where to purchase it. You can send him an email. And it's a digital book, which is great because you have it everywhere you go. So anyways, Wayne and I talk in great length about William Flynn, the man, the golf architect, the player. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy this. I think we'll probably do one of these about most uh, golf architects, if you like it. So let us know. And thank you again for listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. Here is Wayne Morrison. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. How did this whole thing start? How did you become enamored with William Flynn? Well, it's hard not to be enamored with William Flynn living and and playing golf in the Philadelphia area because there's so many Flynn courses here. But um, I was commuting to New York every day for work and got tired of crossword puzzles and cryptograms and writing failed screenplays. So I thought, you know, this guy William Flynn has designed most of my favorite courses in the Philadelphia area. Nobody really knows anything about him. I see all this books and things coming out on other golf architects. And I thought, well, why not William Flynn? So, so where'd you start? What'd you do to start? First thing I did was I reached out to Jim Finnegan, good friend of our families, and he's a prolific golf writer and beautiful golf writer. And I asked him what he thinks I should do. And he said, research. <laughs> you gotta gotta get you gotta find uh whatever materials you can. He suggested I talk to uh, David Gordon, William Gordon's son. They had a design team together. And William Gordon was a construction foreman for Flynn. So I reached out to, at uh, Mr. Finnegan's advice, I reached out to David Gordon and I said, I'm trying to write this book on William Flynn, but I don't think it's going to be more than a pamphlet because I can't find anything. And he said to me, what's your address? I gave him my address. He goes, I'm going to send you something. Wait, wait till you see. 
So about two weeks later, I in you know in front of my house is this huge box. It's probably four feet by three feet, and inside were uh, probably about three thousand drawings that Flynn did on golf courses. So, uh, so you know, you had decided to write this a book or a pamphlet on William Flynn. How long were you waiting or looking for stuff on William Flynn before you talked to Gordon? Probably four or five months. And I wasn't getting anywhere. This was probably 98. So a lot of stuff wasn't digitized then. And, um, you know, there's some great historical societies in the Philadelphia area, great libraries. Um, So I started going to those. I found uh, some the papers of some important people at Marion, and there were some re- really interesting things there. I found the Dolan collection, which is a wonderful uh, collection of aerial photographs that this guy in the 20s and 30s would fly around doing industrial w- work and work for the federal government. I guess it was land management and things like that. But he also photographed golf courses. So in that was a collection of a number of courses in the Philadelphia area where he was based, but up and down the East Coast as well. So it just so happens there were probably 20 or so clubs that Flynn designed that I had old aerials of. So so then this box comes full of stuff. (laughs) You know, undreamed of riches as far as, uh, you know, investigating and trying to do a book on William Flynn. Probably the largest collection of architectural plans by any architect pre-World War II. I mean, I don't think anything comes close. Even the Tufts archives down in Pinehurst pales in, pales in comparison to, to what Flynn did. Can you, can you take us to the, like, you opened the box. Like, what, what were you, I what, could, what did you do? Like, well, after my jaw closed, which, uh, it was incredible. I mean, it, it uh, was like, it, it was the key to the whole project really without that i wouldn't have been able to write a 2517 page book still going getting bigger still getting bigger yeah (laughs) i just found out last month that flynn did a redesign of the tuxedo club's original course so i had to add that chapter but um there were you know i know there was uh, dan wexler did a book on uh, lost courses and one of the courses he mentioned was wouldn't it be great if i could find the original plans for boca raton south well there was the routing map for Boca Raton South and all the individual Hulk drawings. It's everything he wished he had when he was writing the book on on the Boca Raton courses. Do you um, remember what was like the first at the top of the box, like the first thing that you opened up, or did you know immediately what was in it? Like, I had no idea. He, so, he, he, he like I'm saying, when you opened it, do you remember what was the first thing that you looked at was Catanset. Right and at there the was top. A, a, right at the top where were uh, fourteen of eighteen hole drawings of Catanset, and there was a an interesting uh, you know uh, revelation because most of the people at Catanset thought that it was a Frederick Hood course. <coughs> Excuse me, he was the uh, you know the, the inspiration behind the project, and he oversaw the construction of it, but he didn't design the course. Uh, the, the the Flynn plans matched the aerial photographs I had. And, uh, it, you know, it, we found some documentation that later on that corroborated that it was a Flynn design. So that was a, that was an interesting discovery of sorts where, you know, we could find an attribute, you know, could verify an attribution. 
So the box comes in total. How many? How many golf courses? Uh, information did it have on it? I I, might, I think in the fifth low fifties. Low fifties and pretty much really detailed. Like what was the most detailed of the courses? Well, of the drawing, I mean, um, the drawings we had access to was Denver Country Club, a redesign that Flynn was doing, where it was one of the few courses where we had his detailed construction instructions. So if you look at uh, Gil Hance's drawings today, he uses the, as a template the Flynn uh, plan, the grid map or grid paper, where each box was ten yards and on, on the on the whole drawing, and each green detail was ten feet. So uh, and there was a list of construction, very specific construction instructions for each each hole: the depth of the bunkers, the height of the mounds. Uh, all kinds of uh, really interesting detailed um, instructions because um, you know Flynn had a very interesting I don't know if you know this but he had a really interesting business model where he grew up being a great you know, a, a really good player in high school competing against Francis Wimet beating him most of the time but um, he became interested in golf architecture Really, uh, when he came down to Philadelphia, but he was a great agronomist. You know, he was one of the leading turf experts and experimenters in turf grasses. He developed uh, construction techniques and, and seeding techniques and, and, and bent grasses that, that that are used even today. So, and he was a great architect. So he was really a one-stop shop. William Flynn Design Company was the designer and. Toomey and Flynn was the construction and and um, turf grass ex, uh, team. So he they would consult on turf grass and build the golf course. Right. So their their model was like we'll help we'll build you we'll design it build it and then we'll also grow it in effectively. Right. So I mean no other architecture firm back then was doing all those things and doing them at an elite level. So they got a lot of jobs that way. Mm -hmm. um, Flynn was also. Philadelphia was an interesting place to to be part of the golf revolution in the United States because it was a little behind the other cities. We talked about this a little earlier. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. This is something I wanted to ask you as a question: was how did William Flynn get to Philadelphia, and how did he become part of this golf renaissance in the city? He came to Philadelphia to be on the construction crew because he was from Boston. He was from Boston. Grew up in Milton, Massachusetts, caddied at Wollaston Golf Course, and competed. Really, I mean, golf, he was one of the leading high school golfers in the state, but he was also the captain of the basketball team, captain of the football team, and probably ran track as well. He was just a gifted athlete and really a brilliant, hardworking guy. So he came to Philadelphia to work on the construction crew. I'm not sure if it's on the East Course or the West Course. Flynn's brother-in-law, Frederick Pick Pickering, was the one of the leading golf construction guys in the country at the time. Uh, he, at the age of 52, married Flynn's 18-year-old sister, which even, um, I don't know what it was like back then, but it seems a little scandalous today. <laughs> and uh, Seems like a bad guy. <laughs> well, he had, some, he had some issues for sure. The marriage didn't last very long. And he had some alcohol problems and was fired during the construction of the West Course. At Marion. At Marion. And then Flynn took over as construction, head of construction for the West Course. He, 
was at the, you know, really close, became close with Hugh Wilson, who was the member in charge of the, the, the new course, which is now the uh, East Course at Marion. But they moved from Haverford to, to Ardmore. And uh, they hit it off. You know, it was more like a father-son relationship. And um, Hugh Wilson was, a, you know, obviously a genius. Um, he imparted a lot of knowledge on Flynn. Flynn and he worked together on a number of projects outside of Marion even. They owned a, the first public golf course outside of the city. They owned together and designed together. That was, what was that called? It was originally called Marble Hall and then Green Valley Country Club, a Jewish club in the area, moved from one location and, and purchased the, that uh, from Flynn's estate. And then they worked together on Catanset a little bit, Cobbs Creek, certainly, and uh, Pine Valley after Crump uh, passed away. So the Philly School, I, I think this is one of the coolest. I, obviously, everybody knows Philadelphia as a mecca of golf in, Amer- in America. But ro- that that reputation is rooted in, you know, the the Philadelphia School of Architecture and the kind of a group of individuals that included Flynn, Wilson, uh, founds fr- the Founds' father-son from Oakmont, and then also Tillinghast and George Thomas. And, and Crump and, and, and A.B. Clauder yeah. and, you know, uh, George Meehan. There's, you know, the, some lesser names, but uh, they, they collaborated. They played a lot of golf. The Golf Association of Philadelphia is an incredible organization, and it was from the very beginning. It was the first regional golf association. But uh, the intra-club play, inter-club play, sorry, um, really sparked a lot of uh, uh, movement towards the better golfers. You know, we, we talked, we, we, we brushed upon the Leslie Cup. So um, Philadelphia was a, cricket, a bastion of cricket. Baseball took a long time to take hold in the in Philadelphia area. And so did golf because it was mostly horses and, and cricket. Which kind of gave Philadelphia, I guess, Philadelphia an advantage in the long run because some of the, you know, Victorian golf with the steeple chases and the cop bunkers and things like that, you know, were happening elsewhere. And then when Philadelphia started getting into it in the mid to late 1890s, there was, a, you know, there was a bit of a freedom of uh, expression. They didn't have, they weren't tied to the the old world clubs. They weren't tied to what was going on in Chicago or New York or Boston. And uh, the Leslie Cup was, I forget when that was established, uh, maybe 1900, you know, sometime between 1900 and 1910. And Philadelphia was just getting slaughtered by New York and Boston. So the Leslie Cup, it was Montreal. That was later on. They were Quebec. Okay. Yeah. So it was Boston, New York, and Philly, and it was a team competition. Right. It was. It was really the precursor and it still to the today, yeah. right? Yeah, but it's not. It's 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 lost a little bit of its luster, like the the Linwood Hall amateur event at, at uh, Huntington Valley and the Hugh Wilson at Marion. They they kind of have slipped away um, because of all the college you know tournament season and things like that. But um, we Seems were getting like the Leslie Cup needs uh, needs to be resurrected, uh, or well, you know, it needs to attract. You know, instead of the old guard, you know, uh, players from the different cities, you know, it, you know, could have a little bit of flair. Yeah. So uh, Philadelphia just, you know, was getting hammered in all these tournaments and they decided what we need are better golf courses to develop better golfers. And that was the genesis for Marion and Pine Valley. 
So, so, you know, New York at that time had national golf links. Garden mm-hmm. City would have been around then, right? Yeah. Um, in Boston, Myopia. Right. The Country Club would have been, Essex would have been around, but it would have been a different golf course then mm-hmm. than it is now. In Philadelphia, what did Philadelphia have? Three cans of peas in the ground, pretty much, at Philadelphia Country Club. Not much. And, uh, you know, we, we were late getting uh, public golf going in Philadelphia. Cobbs Creek in 1916, I think that's when it opened, was the first public course in, in the Philadelphia, whereas Boston and New York had public courses long, you know, they More had, than, they had Court, Courtland, uh, Van Cortland, Cortland, yeah, in in 1894 or yeah. whatever in the Bronx. Well, we had nothing, so we weren't developing great golfers, and uh, the the movement towards creating golf courses to promote better play, you know, really sparked the Philadelphia School of Golf architecture. So Marion and Pine Valley, two of obviously the most historic places, were really born out of collaboration and. Uh, being tired of getting their ass kicked in a in a competition, pretty much, yeah. Um, Pine Valley, even more so, a collaborative effort because Marion was, uh, you know, mostly Hugh Wilson. Um, he was a rather sickly man, unfortunately, but um, he knew he he was really tied into the USGA. He and his brother Alan Wilson, and they were CB McDonald uh, hooked them up with. Uh, uh, the guys at the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, geez, forgetting their names for a second. Um, and uh, they they put a, as much effort into uh, golf architecture as they did playing surfaces, subsoil, you know, subs, you know, below ground and, and above ground. And there was a guy in Philadelphia called Frederick Taylor, and he was a really interesting guy. He was also on the executive board of Pine Valley, and uh, he developed which is kind of a, an angle, angled version of the USGA spec greens and developed. He was really big into time management for large enterprises. And Flynn learned from him how to develop cost models to, 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 that would be very accurate. So he could, he could tell a club you know, what it would cost to design and build the golf course, and he'd be spot on. Whereas, and I don't know this for a fact, but maybe, so I've been maybe to- some architects now could, try could and benefit from find, that. Find the model. I heard. Uh, I heard uh, there wasn't a course that uh, Donald Ross did that came in <laughs> on or under budget. <laughs> Everything over. Yeah. So so Flynn Flynn was attractive in that sense, in that he could really, you know, he took a scientific approach to to management of his of his operations and also uh, how he approached golf design. Um. He uh, spent a lot of time on site. So, you know, whereas Donald Ross was doing 20 courses a year, Flynn was doing two or three courses a year. Where uh, even Rayner and Tillinghast were doing, you know, several hundred, you know, 200 courses or whatever. Flynn's only, you know, he only did about 80 designs. Not all of those were built. Certainly not all of them lasted. The, the, the land bubble in Florida Um Caused the the uh, no longer existing courses down there, but uh, he, today I think there's only about fifty courses that that are, you know, had any version of Flynn, whether it's an original design, a redesign, or you know, a varying scales or ag- agronomic work that he did. With uh, with Flynn, I guess, you know, you you hear the other names that we talked about, Crump, 
found, and obviously those two and Wilson are tied directly to a couple of the greatest golf courses mm-hmm. in the country. But then you, George Thomas and A.W. Tillinghast are in there. And why do you think that Flynn, despite his, his vast number of golf courses and sometimes the, the um, stature of some of them, is a little bit slept on in the world of golf architecture? That's the question I was hoping to answer when I first started this because I thought he wasn't getting the credit that he was due. Um, you know, I would play interclub matches in Gap. Uh, I was a member at Rolling Green at the time, which is a fabulous Flynn course and not too far from Marion. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd play all these, I'd want to play the away matches. And I'd go to the, the away matches and I'd ask who the architect was. And most of the members would go, I don't know, why do you care? So, but I found out that most of the courses that I liked in the area were by this guy, William Flynn, who to me was, an, I had no idea who he was. And um, so I started exploring that. Uh, Connie Lagerman, Flynn's daughter, was still alive uh, for most of the, I'd say the first 10 years that I was writing the book. So I was able to get anecdotes and a little bit of a profile of who he was like. She she said that he was a wild and mild Irishman, that he could, you know, he loved to go up in airplanes and do death-defying stunts with the, the pilots at the time, but he was also- he was up there with Dallin. He was he he did go up with Dolan, and uh, but he was a you know he was a really great family man. He was you know beloved by most of the people that met him. Um, when he worked for the Rockefellers, de- developing the course in Epicanico Hills, he uh, lived he he they they let him stay in the big house with the family. When he was working with Albert Lasker, he was treated like a um, you know like not like a like not like a. Uh, a contractor. He was, you know, they really had a high regard for him. He was apparently uh, very well liked. He came over, he wasn't from a well-off family when he came to the States, right? No, he, well, he was born in the United States. Okay, and or, okay. he was born there, but he, his family was, immig- or his parents were immigrants. No, right? they were, yeah, they were, and they were laborers. Mm-hmm. Um, the father was. Flynn grew up caddying at Wollaston, and, uh, but he married a gardener. And, uh, you know, she's in the, she's, uh, the Gardner family in Boston is pretty well regarded. You know, I'm sure there's many gardeners. I thought you were talking about like an actual gardener. Chauncey Gardner? No, like a, uh, like a, somebody that gardens. Oh no, the the Gardner family. (laughs) One of those Brahmin families out of Boston. And, uh, so he, he, he married well. I mean, she wasn't, you know, not everybody in those illustrious families were wealthy but uh he married very well and he was accepted into philadelphia society Mm -hmm. i mean if you look at you know the movers and shakers in philadelphia were some of the biggest names in in industry and um the pennsylvania railroad was the first billion dollar company in the in the country and most of those executives were uh marion golf club members or marion cricket club members at the time so uh you know, his relationship with, with Hugh Wilson was, you know, sort of opened up a lot of doors for him. He uh, was, you know, working on some of the big, you know, in any given city where he was working, it was generally the, the, the elite club of the, of the area. Mm-hmm. If you look at Cleveland, it was Pepper Pike Club and the Country Club in Pepper Pike. Um, Shinnecock and, on, on Long Island, it was, you know, the fanciest uh, summer vacation spot for the New Yorkers. Cherry Hills in Denver. 
Cherry Hills in Denver, Indian Creek in Florida. You know, there's it's it's it's, it's an interesting dynamic um, who his who his clients were. He didn't take on a lot of projects, like we said earlier. He only did two or three courses, you know, a year. Spent a lot of time on site. So he was he kind of was the precursor to Corn Crenshaw and to Doak and to Hans, where they designed build teams. He you know as opposed to you know some other architects that just put together a plan on a piece of paper and a construct and a contracting team builds it. He was on site quite a bit. And uh, as a result, his courses were built as he, you know, if you took his preliminary or you took his final uh, architectural plans and you overlaid those on an aerial photograph, an old aerial photograph, they match exactly. So he, you know, he, he was very precise in his planning and execution of his, of his design work didn't leave things to chance, so to speak, and had his own construction crew that went with him everywhere. To me, to me and Flynn, yeah, yeah. What? Uh, well, with you know William uh, William Gordon and and uh, Red Lawrence were the head of his construction crews, who then later became a solo architects yeah, on their and own. And Dick Wilson was he got fired once from Flint by Flynn, but uh, William Gordon had him rehired the later that day. Flynn came back from. Uh, a, a trip somewhere and went back to Shinnecock and saw that Dick, that uh, Dick Wilson took some liberties with his plans and flipped out and fired him on the spot. Dick Wilson's brother was also on the team, so probably a combination of Dick Wilson and, and uh, Dick Wilson's brother and and William Gordon, you know, pleaded a you know and, and Flynn hired him back, but he was very particular about how his golf courses seems were like built. he was very Type A, very much so, yeah. <laughs> And I think I think his courses benefit from his time on site. Yeah, that, I think uh, when you play when you play a Flynn course, it, from my experience, it seems like one of his strengths was finding the best green sites and really maximizing properties. By you know, you think about some of them. Lancaster is a perfect example where you know, effectively three focal points where the clubhouse is, where the the 10th green is there's a ridge and then where the first green is there's a there's a ridge and pretty much like you know those three ridges control all but a few holes of the golf they're course. hubs for, yeah. for the for the design yeah and uh flynn did that in a lot of places you know his plans for the country club of york which he didn't get um were, was very much like that that's a fascinating study by the yeah, way yeah the, the, with the ross and the flynn route yeah they were both competing for the same job and it had the same starting and finishing point because the farmhouse was going to be the clubhouse. So uh, it's it's really interesting to see those two great golf architects, how they've varied in their approach to the same site. For anybody that's looking, there, there was a Golf Club Atlas uh, article written about that, I believe, yeah. uh, in the last couple of years. And uh, if you just Google that, I think it pulls up. Um, if anybody wants to look at that. Yeah, you would have thought that maybe they were running, you know, they ran in the same direction or maybe at worst they were playing opposite directions, but they were mostly 90 degrees from each other. It was- and sometimes these, you know, they had these effectively bake-off. That, that's exactly what a lot of modern architects hate is having to do a routing plan for a job they don't have. And, and Ross and Flynn did it. For yeah. Them. So it's it's I mean it's 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 a rare opportunity to just try to get into the minds of two 
celebrated architects, but who looked at the same piece of ground very differently. What would you say some of the other strengths outside of spending time on site from William Flynn courses and like characteristics that say somebody could pick up on at a Flynn course? That's a, that's a good question. I think, um, well, from an architectural standpoint, he, he, um, spent a lot of time tying the features into the ground naturally to, to look natural. Um, Hence the name of your book, The Nature Faker. Yeah, he called it. He, his daughter said he called himself that. Oh, really? I didn't know that was a pejorative term because I guess there was some uh, anti-scientific sort of uh, 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 effort going where you know people were talking about you know it was pseudoscience and there was something to do with evolution and and you know fake built down man and uh, those kinds of things. But uh, Flynn was, you know, self-deprecating. He never took himself too seriously. You know, I don't think back then the architects took took each other all that seriously. They would re- undo each other's work without very, you know, Flynn redid Ross courses within a few years after they opened or redid uh, Tillinghast courses a few years they were open. And I'm sure other people, you know, did the same. Um, there, there wasn't – somewhere along the line, golf architects became rock stars and uh, – are are held in a in a certain regard, and the courses are held in, in in a regard as well. Well, that's the thing I've I've always heard about golf course architects, though, is when they came to town, they were like celebrities versus oh. like golf pros. Like they were treated much differently than like golf pros were they treated could, like almost like dirt. They couldn't know? go in the clubhouse. Couldn't go in the clubhouse, like. You know, but golf course architects were always celebrities. Is that right? I I wouldn't didn't really know that. I think for a while, you know, and you know, at, at a certain time, probably around the era of Hogan, you know, is when things flipped. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, so Flynn, uh, I think he was able to 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 make use of his successes in the Philadelphia area. To, and and his and his accomplishments in turf, that when when clubs were 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 uh, looking for you know who should we hire, you know he was he was he got the reputation as being a an outstanding designer, construction guy, and turf grass expert. And you know why hire three different people when you can hire one person and get it? Makes it easy, right? It's the all one the bundle. Yeah, that's he was I think the bundle. I think that it's a it's right. <laughs> he was I think Comcast before Comcast. <laughs> that's right. He was uh, he was up for the you know the the Rockefeller family when they decided they were going to redesign the Willie Dunn course that they had on their estate in New York. When on a pretty long search, the 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 sons were you know trying to develop a golf course in celebration of their father, who was a you know avid golfer, and uh, they had their engineer you know do a do a search for golf architects. And he wrote this interesting letter to uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. Uh, there aren't really any good golf architects in America. Uh, if, you know, the, the only two I could possibly recommend are this Donald Ross of Pinehurst and William Flynn of Philadelphia. And uh, he goes, "Man, just throwing shade at so many architects that I mean, are revered now." Yeah. So uh, I think you know, the, knowing the Rockefeller family as I do, and knowing how you know what they're approach was, I think they really appreciated the fact that here was a guy that was going to tell them exactly how much it was going to cost to build the golf course, and he was going to deliver it uh, on or under budget. They were thrilled with the course he did, um, and uh, 
he stayed in, like I said, he stayed in their house, in, in, in Mr. Rockefeller Sr.'s house while he was doing that work. And, uh, the, the, the reporting afterwards was that they, you know, they, he took them on a journey, you know, around the, it's one of the most beautiful places in America. But, you know, the, the course wound through this estate with lots of long views over the Hudson River and, and beautiful specimen trees and things like that. And it was, it, it, it was a journey. And Flynn, I said, you said, you asked me, you know, what are some of the characteristics of Flynn? He, he was, his routings are phenomenal. His use of the natural land and and maximizing the use of the features at hand are, are brilliant. And I think that creates some sort of uniqueness about his courses because every piece of land is a little bit different. And if you use the land rather than manufacturing, like today, you know, they have those big bulldozers and, you know, they replicate, you know, hole number three with green number B or whatever. You know, he, he, he really liked to use the site as much as possible. But where he would build things and, and create uh, architectural elements, he tied them in to look natural. And that and that's kind of, you know, in a, in a way, I think he's, you know, they look, at, they look at some of his work, or people today look at some of his work and say, you know, he got a great piece of ground. Well, if you look at the Cascades, where it's, it, you know, it's, it's not really a mountain course. It sits in a valley, but uh, it's surrounded by mountains. That was an engineering marvel. I mean, I don't know how many tens of thousands of pounds of dynamite were used and and moving streams and, and rebuilding uh, land areas for, for fairways and greens. It, it, but, it, but if you look at it, you can, you can look at the list of all the uh, engineering work that was done, but you look at it, it looks, per, it looks like it's nature made it, not, not Flynn. So I think routing is, is key. The use of the natural features is, is, is key. And those are hard concepts for most people to you know to go to a golf course once or twice, or even members at a club to, to really pick up on. Pick up on it's, yeah. those are hard things to see. It's not like eccentric greens, like a, like a Tilling or like a um, like a Alistair McKenzie or a Walter Travis. Yeah, with flourishy even. bunkers and yeah. you know, eye candy, so to speak, or bold external features like a Rainer course that were built up by steam shovels or a Charles Banks course. Yeah, his his architecture was much more almost below the surface in a way. Yeah. They, I mean, he was an outstanding builder of golf courses. They drained great, you know. He and he had a he had an understanding that the technology was affecting the game, you know. When he grew up, it was, it was the the gutta percha ball and hickories, and then it became Pascal ball and steel shafts, and better better athletes were playing the game. So even in 1927, he said, if we don't do something about the ball, we're going to have to start building 7,500 and 8,000 yard golf courses. So he proposed around that time that instead of bastardizing and lengthening existing golf courses that would negatively affect member play at, at some of these you know old guard clubs, why not just have some geographically diverse seven or eight golf courses that the USGA would you know just hold their championships on? Probably would have saved clubs a lot of money and uh, maybe may, maybe make for a better playing experience on a day to day basis. It, what's interesting is that's still being said now. Why don't we just build them a road of courses and maybe you know we they everybody probably scoffed at the idea and said that's financially you know ridiculous and and then you know a hundred years later effectively it does, it seems like God they would have saved a lot of money if they had done that. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, and Flynn designed elasticity into his courses. You know, we had a little bit of effect of that walking around today where you play a hole and there's plenty of room to go backwards, but you got to walk, you know, a hundred yards back to get to the, to the tee and then, then walk forward again. But, uh, he designed elasticity into his courses. I think if you, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I think most of his courses are more relevant today than, than some of his other contemporaries. Well, I think one of the things that I've found, um, I haven't seen nearly all of them. I've seen a, a fair amount of them is that the number on the card rarely represents how they play. Like because of his use of natural features, a lot of times the yardage on the card isn't representative of how you feel at when you get done with a round, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, oh, that that was 6,500 yards. It felt like 7,000, you know. Or at Marion, for instance, he plays 6,100 yards from the white tees and it feels like 6,800 or 6,900 yards. Mm-hmm. Some of that's because, you know, if you think about it, you know, on, on uh, one, two, you know, um, six, a bunch of the holes, you're uh, 14, you're hitting into upslopes. So you don't get a lot of roll out of the out of the tee shots. Hitting from it, it, and a lot of times it would be you hit from a ridge seemingly into an upslope, and then the green is is further up the slope. You know, I think a lot of that too. Rolling is greens like that a lot. He was an architect in the aerial age when aerial golf was being born. Effectively, oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Think think about the 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 uh, the holes at uh, Marion Pine Valley, Pine Valley and Shinnecock. Mm-hmm. The mix of, and this is a, this is this is a design uh, tent, uh, theory and practice of Flynn's, the, the holes that you have ground game options on and, and aerial demands on, it's about fifty fifty, mm-hmm. um, and and he he believed very much in shot testing, so he designed holes that rewarded the ability to hit certain shots. At Huntington Valley, you know, it's hitting fades off a of draw lies or draws off a of fade lies, that's often required. You think of the tenth hole at Rolling Green. It was designed. To, it was intended to be a 260-yard uphill par three in 1926. I think they built the tee at around 240. But there, he wanted you to be able to hit a low-running draw to, and the ground before the green and the green itself accepts a, a low-running draw. So he, you know, we we talked about some of the long holes today at Merriam. You had a hit driver on a lot of it, and you know, at least one par three around. He wanted you to be tested with a driver on a par three. I think the par threes would definitely be one of the things that stands out about his designs in general. There, you know, there's always a seemingly a good short par three, but then also some in brawny long par threes that are really taxing. And, you know, in general, typically a pretty good variety um, mm-hmm. as opposed, you know, and I think one of the things is that he built par fives that were more gettable. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, you know. I have, you know, what people, you know, call a bias, but uh, I think you might be biased. You it, got twenty five hundred pages in, in it, under you. It's an informed bias, <laughs> yeah. But uh, well, maybe you're just more well researched in one one architect. That, that is very you true. Know, if you duck into someone else, you might, you know. Yeah, but nobody interests me enough to do that. No, I'm just kidding. You um, just need to move out of Philadelphia, and then you might, you know, <laughs> then you, you might be exposed to somebody else. Yeah, that's true. Um, it, there, and, and that's maybe one reason why Flynn isn't as uh, uh, is regarded as highly as as some others, because his courses are geographically centered in areas that you know the population shifts 
in the United States aren't really around anymore. You know, he didn't do any. The only thing he did out west was a little bit of Denver Country Club and Cherry Hills. He did that Pine Meadow and and uh, and, uh, and for the Cardinal R.I.P. Joe Lee. Yeah. It used to be so, there. That piece of land is is just a beautiful, beautiful. Is it? I've play. never been there. Oh, the well, I think the nuns, the Covenant, owns it. Yeah, and um, they lease it to the Gemsics, who own Cock Hill too. But it is it is a wonderful, wonderful property, and uh, unfortunately, not much of any Flynn is. That's remains. a shame. Jolie took care of that. A little bit of Flynn was implemented out of a, a plan that he did for the Glenview Club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I caddied there, but you know, I don't even—I don't even know if you think uh, maybe there's 25 percent of the courses Flynn. I mean, that, that, that might place, be generous. That place had—I um, believe they had Colt plants. Oh, is that right? Ross plants. They have Flynn plants, and somehow it's none of. None it's of a the bastardization above. of well, well, yeah. Somebody I don't know. I who. mean, it's a fine fine golf course. It's I, a great club. Yeah, I, it's great club. And uh, fine, fine golf course, but it's just interesting. You always wonder if you just kind of went with one of these, would you be in a different place? Different, different place because it's really it's a pretty interesting ground piece of ground for for oh. Chicago. Um, it, 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 Flynn didn't do a, you know he did a lot of ultra private clubs, so mm-hmm. you know that would prevent you know a lot of people from understanding his portfolio and where it stands in the pantheon of golf architects. But uh, you know, like Ross had Pinehurst, where you know, every, you know, anybody who was anybody was wintering there, or you know, it was a, a trip south. They were always stopping there. <clears throat> Flynn, you know, the Cascades helped Flynn a little bit, but you know, in general, they were very private clubs that uh, didn't get a lot of play. Well, it, I think what we talked about earlier too is like a lot. It seems like a lot of places didn't even know they were William Flynn designs for a long time. Like it, I had heard at one point, like. People thought Shinnecock was a Dick Wilson design. That's because Dick Wilson went in there in the '60s and said it was his design. Oh, William Flynn was my boss, but this is really my design. And, you know, it's just total BS. In in hopes of you know generating, I guess, uh, you know, other business. So here's he, maybe arguably the best championship golf course in America, and for decades it's masqueraded as a Dick Wilson design huh. when in actuality, well. Donald Ross is building his lore on all of his championship courses and Tillinghast. You know, Shinnecock is thought to be Dick Wilson. Yeah, their golf first course. history book, it was a Dick Wilson course. So, you know, this is also a pos- possible why- reason why maybe he's not as well regarded. Is, you know, you, you, the, the probably his most well known golf course wasn't always known as his qual- golf course. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, even in uh, Indian Creek, which is a very private club down in Florida, it's on its private island. You know, Red Lawrence said that he designed the golf course. So, well, they they learned that from RTJ. <laughs> is that right? I believe. Well, they so. learned well. Well, RTJ allegedly, and I think it's it's from a difficult par. The book he took. Um, he took the quotes. I might be citing this wrong, but he took the quotes from that Alistair McKenzie said about Stanley Thompson, and used them for his U.S. flyers right after the the Great Depression ended, and you know sent them around to every club in in the United States with these quotes about what Alistair McKenzie said about Stanley Thompson, saying that's about what he him? said about him. And, um, you know, of course, Stanley Thompson was in Canada. Yeah, right. Didn't see any of these flyers. And uh, RTJ also picked up all this work. 
Well, that, that's that's kind of that's that's interesting. But look, that's what Red Lawrence and, yeah. and uh, Dick Wilson did effectively. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about Indian Creek because. Um, you know, the Lido was supposedly this great engineer. I mean, it was a great engineering feat, and it was considered a, a you know, monumental design at the time. And now it's being replicated pretty closely up in is it Wisconsin where they're doing that? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, Indian Creek was built on a piece of land that was three feet in, dead flat, three feet above sea level. Then they were dredging Biscayne Bay. Uh, Indian Creek became a you know a development project, and they used a lot of the fill from the bay to build up uh, the island. Flynn designed that, every contour on that design above three feet flat was uh, was by Flynn, in, you know, by Flynn's, in, it happened in Flynn's mind and he put it on, you know, he put it onto the ground. The clubhouse is 35 feet above sea level. It's the tallest spot in Dade County. And, uh, but you stand, you, you walk around that island and it looks, you know, it looks natural. I mean, it really is. An, it's an amazing place. Some of the best approach shots in all of golf. While he was down there, you know, one of the I always have thought of having seen, you know, done research on, the, on Normandy Shores. He did do a public golf course right there, Normandy Shores, mm-hmm. which was, you know, out on an island. And you look at the old aerials of that place, and it looks just absolutely unbelievable. And this is something that I found from your book. I, yeah. I, I just stumbled upon that. And I was, I looked at it, and I'm like, oh my god, I got to go see this place. But you know, yeah, part of the thing is, so it ain't the there public, anymore. The public courses that he did, they aren't, they didn't get the treatment of Pinehurst. They didn't get the treatment for the most part of uh, of Bethpage, where you know Tillinghast's work is largely preserved. There, mm-hmm. they fell victim to the 1990s and the 1980s, <laughs> the 1970s. Cobbs Creek is a good example of that. That was a, that, I mean, it's not a, you know, original William Flynn, but that was a collaborative effort by those Philadelphians uh, that, uh, and, and it, it was a phenomenal golf course, but, uh, you know, a, a uh, ICBM, you know, in, you know, interceptor missile site and a driving range and, you know, changing dynamics in the, in the neighborhood. Um, you know, there's the course that you see today is a, is a lot different than, than what it was, but it's going to be put back. And I think if that gets put back, the uh, the design intent of Hugh Wilson and William Flynn and and uh, Crump and those guys are going to be returned, and it's going to be uh, as I mean, it, it has. I think it has the potential to be as highly or more highly regarded than any of the Bethpage courses. Yeah, that, I think that's the thing is that Bethpage Black is the looming monster and municipal golf and obviously everybody and I think a lot of it's because of the championship history. But when you look at some of the other public golf course, great public golf courses that haven't gotten the restoration or in that case, a restoration, um, they are, you know, if those courses get the brush up. There might be a question as to what the best is because you know you look at the greens at, at Bethpage Black and they they leave you wanting a lot more. The, it's a head scratcher. Why those greens? That means when, when you're well, designing a golf complex that's supposed to be, you know, gradually harder and harder and more championship of a golf course with black being the pinnacle of championship design of that complex. The greens are you know there's a couple good greens on there, but most of them are not that interesting. I took a trip to uh, Cleveland Heights in Lakeland one one time oh, when I was in Florida. There's one I haven't been to yet. 
there's a lot left there. Yeah, there's, there's not. It's not all there, but there's like definitely holes that you you. Uh, that's that looks like a you know something he might do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's, it's it's just interesting how the uh, the whole stories of these places work. Like that that was the Lakeland was the spring training site of Cleveland. The Cleveland Indians, the owner probably got to know William Flynn from his work at Pepper Pike. And, yeah, exactly. He was probably a member of both of them. Yeah, and and then all of a sudden he says, "Come down to Lakeland and design a course at my spring training facility." Right. You know, it's just wild to think about, like the the how you know these guys got around the country. I, I didn't know, know that was the the, pra- the the spring training site for the Indians. Well, that's why it's called Cleveland Heights. Well, I, I thought it was because of the guys from Cleveland. Uh-huh. Oh, I knew they were. I knew they were Cleveland guys, but I didn't know that's where the site for the for the the spring training was for the team yeah i, be, I believe that that's, that's interesting correct story you know now I, I it was so long ago that i always doubt myself and i didn't you know i know what you mean but but, but I, I i believe that was the story um behind that but yeah i, I mean Cobbs creek obviously could be a good spot where like you know obviously it's being restored by gil hans and jim wagner mm-hmm. and uh hans golf design obviously jim uh being from Philadelphia, spent a lot of time there, and I, he, I know he's put a lot of like pro bono work over the years. And yeah, with, he played a lot of golf at Cobb's Creek, and he was a fence member at Marion. Mm-hmm. So it's great that you know it's kind of interesting. You know, Gill's Philadelphia is an adopted home for Gill, and it's the home of of Jim Wagner, and they take tremendous pride in the in the in the, in the you know the architectural legacies of, of Philadelphia, and, and I'm so glad that they're. They work on many of the courses around here because we're all the better for it. Mm-hmm. So in your mind, you know, what are the outside of you? We've talked about Indian Creek and Shinnecock and Catanzit. What are the other top flight William Flynn courses uh, that are of the first class? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, according to Connie Lagerman, Flynn's daughter, Philadelphia Country Club was his favorite course in the Philadelphia area of his original designs. And uh, they moved the clubhouse, and uh, unfortunately, the routing progression changed, and the finishing holes um, is not is not up to to the to the rest of the golf course. But I think Philadelphia Country Club has some spectacular, unique landform holes. Uh, you you haven't been there, right? No, but you know, the, there's you know, the, you know, the the sixteenth uh, hole is a is a downhill. Short par four with a bunker that was added uh, later on for the thirty nine and open, right in the middle of the fairway, short of the of the green. That you have to carry that bunker, land it short of the green to keep it on. The, you know, it's a very precise shot you have to hit. So it's a short hole, but it's a high demand hole. Um, I think we we talked a little bit about uh, earlier today about the the country club in Pepper Pike. There are three golf holes there that are really unique. And they're all world golf holes. The twelfth is a par five, the fifteenth is a is a par four with a with a you know elevated platform for the uh, that the, the green sits on, and the seventeenth is one of the great holes in in America. Uh, it's got an interesting offset fairway, so you have to pick the right line in distance. You know, one of the things that you see in some of the older golf courses, you know, I'll, I'll say it, you know, McDonald and Rainer courses, a lot of straightaway holes with with very little offset. You really are just challenged on direction, but not not distance. If you have an offset fairway, it's line and distance. You Think know, of Bill, the first hole at Shinnecock. It's interesting you say that, um, and you you talked earlier about how Flynn is was almost like an early iteration of 
Corin Crenshaw. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill, when he talked about Trinity Force and how he wanted to test the best players in the world, he talked about how making holes that force them to worry about hitting the right distance and direction, not mm-hmm. necessarily in bending holes to create that type of thing, not a dog leg per se, but just a, the way the hole just kind of gently moves a certain direction mm-hmm. with a fairway angled a certain way that creates a situation where you need to hit a line and a distance rather than just a, a line. It's a, it's a much more exacting test of, you know, your tee shots. And uh, Flynn did that in in a lot of places. He offset greens, he offset fairways, and uh, his bunkering, for whatever reason, if you look at you know the bunkering at Marion, for instance, it hasn't changed. You know they changed a little bit on the second hole when they lengthened the hole, but uh, the bunkering today is the same as it was, you know, 80, 90 years ago. What was his involvement at Marion? Obviously, he was friends with Hugh Wilson. He was a, he was a growing super at the West Course, and he was. I, I think he was in charge of superintendent, right? Yeah. So he was. So this is interesting. Also, he was. You know, it's it, it's it's interesting because Hugh Wilson and Flynn never, did, you know, documented who did what, and you know, it was this they, very, they didn't care. very type A individual who docu- seemingly documented all sorts of stuff. Didn't document Marion's tour. Correct. Uh, well, you know, we know all the drawings are by Flynn, uh, you know, and starting in 1916 through uh, the, the last bit of changes that were prepared for the 34 Open. But, uh, you know, Hugh Wilson was in charge of everything until he passed away soon after the 1924 amateur. Um, and he was in charge of everything. So, you know, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he didn't have a shovel or anything like that. But he, 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 he was... The inspiration, the the planning, and the ex and and design, everything ran through him. So when Flint, when when the course, when the club uh, bought some new land and added the T on ten, and instead of crossing the the road on ten, to, um, you know everything was on on the uh, on the east side of uh, Ardmore Avenue. Um, you know for 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 ten and eleven and twelve. Um, you know, who knows? You know, you know, it was done. It was done in twenty-two, in preparation for the twenty-four amateur. I don't know. You know how much of that work was Flynn's and how much of that work was Hugh Wilson's. They were, you know, they were. It seemed like they were thick as thieves. They were. They, they, you know, like I said, it was like a foster father and son relationship. Mm-hmm. So I think they collaborated on that. But certainly, work was done at Marion four or five years after Hugh Wilson died. The whole first hole is was redesigned for the 30 amateur. What were the things that, uh, that, uh, he brought to the Pine Valley? Cause obviously that was a huge collaboration. You know, there's stuff that Colt did to help. There's stuff that Tillinghast, obviously mm-hmm. it famously the hell's half acre was allegedly a Tillinghast feature. Crump was kind of the mastermind that brought everything together. But what were, what are the, the, the things that uh, Flynn brought to to well, uh, well, I'll start with agronomics. The course was went into agronomic failure. They were building basically building the course on straight sand, and they kept you know, they couldn't keep grass on the golf course. So I think from nineteen eighteen to nineteen twenty, Flynn was the superintendent at Marion and Pine Valley. Um. 
And at that point, it was like a winter club, Pine Valley, right? Yeah. I mean, all those uh, those big shots from Philadelphia, they would go to Atlantic City to, to play in the wintertime because of the sandy soil and a little bit more temperate wet. You know, it might have been 10 degrees warmer. It takes a train, warmer. right? They took a train to, from Philadelphia to Atlantic City. It went past Pine Valley. George Crump looked out the window and said, Ooh. "Does it still go by, past Pine Valley?" I don't think it's not a passenger train anymore. I think you know, you know, when you walk, when you drive into Pine Valley, you have to go over railroad tracks, and then after driving past a schlocky uh, water park, Splash World, <laughs> and you get into Pine Valley, and all of a sudden, it's like a you know, like Dorothy must have felt in The Wizard of Oz because it's a it's an incredible place and a feel to, to, to Pine Valley. But Flynn did a, did a fair amount of work there. After Crump uh, passed away and he committed suicide, um, there was a committee that was formed to, you know, tr- sort of compile his remin- their, their reminiscences of what Crump wanted to do. And Hugh Wilson and Flynn and a few others uh, worked together to act to, to implement those. 12 through 15 weren't, uh, weren't finished. Um, so, and so Flynn did the bunkering below the second green. He did the bunkering below the 18th green, neither of which exists today. They were modified by a modern architect and, uh, Flynn built the, um, 17th green. He built the bright green on nine with, 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 um, George Thomas and, uh, a few other things. He took the pimple out of the green on 18. But uh, Toomey was on the executive committee at Pine Valley, and Flynn was a member from the very beginning. So uh, that's another that's another example where, you know, here's this arc, you know, this guy from a blue-collar Boston uh, town comes to Philadelphia, and he's, you know, he's on, you know, he's a member of, one, you know, founding member of one of the, you know, premier clubs in the world. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't happen too many places. But you know, Quaker Philadelphia is there. You know, we're sort of. Hope, hopefully, we still have the. Uh, you know, uh, we're we're open minded and and you know we celebrate anybody that you know that that works hard and has some talent and you know Flynn was certainly that. Yeah, it, it, going back to your book, huh? Twenty. You know, this is uh, this is where it started, and I. Uh, Went on numerous tangents as I often do. Um, the book, it's 2,500, 2,600. 2,517 at the 25, moment. 2,517. How did you start? How did you put this together? Boy, it's interesting because, you know, when I started, I guess it was 98 or 99, there wasn't much that was digitized and online. I mean, I, I don't even know what kind of modem I had back then. It was hard to, you know. Dial up, probably. Yeah, you had to wait for, you know, the a page AOL. to load. Everybody AOL, the AOL, right. The, the sign in. So there wasn't that much information, you know, that it was available like there is today. Newspapers.com and magazines that are digitized and things like that. I mean, I'm still constantly mining those sources. Mining, do you have like alerts or something? or No, just, but I probably should. Yeah, you just go on. You know, we did, you know our, I'm on the archives committee at Marion and, uh, you know, we have alerts for anything that comes up on eBay or, you know, got, uh, what is it, green jacket off auctions and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I... I there was a guy. I was I was an early participant in Golf Club Atlas. Got off it for a number of reasons, but uh, there was a fellow that you know I really liked the way he wrote. I really liked his insights and his you know his he was immersed in the world of uh, you know elite golf and elite clubs. His name's Tom Paul, 
and became one of my closest friends. Uh, Tommy, if you're out there, you know, come out of your hermit cave and uh, you know, let's get together. But uh, we went around and we visited all the Flint clubs. That you know, well, we didn't go to Denver and we didn't go to. There's a Plymouth Country Club nine hole small course in North Carolina that that I haven't seen either. It was built by a member that uh, he owned a paper mill and he was a member at Pine Valley. But uh, we, you know, we would go visit the uh, superintendents and they're usually a great source of information at any club. You know, they're they're the go-to guys for preserving documents and things like that. And their insights are, you know, tremendous because they're maintaining the something that was built by this guy a hundred years ago. And uh, it was, it was kind of interesting. The club's, Love the fact that we were digging up information and providing them information. And, you know, this became something that was theoretical and academic, became very practical. Practical because those uh, historic assets are invaluable to architects today that want to do restorations or... I imagine it's like, I mean, any anybody that's a member of Flint Course or any architect who's looking at a Flint Course, I mean, you... The plans that you have in this book and the the aerials and everything. I mean, it's pretty clear what needs to be done at almost all of them. It's just yeah. And like I've, you look at, I look at some of them that I've been to, and it's like, well, like I don't know, you know, really how difficult it is and how it's not back to here. Like this is you got what everything you need to know right here. Yeah, if you have the architectural plans and you have good aerials, I mean, you don't need much more. Uh, a good friend of mine, he does terrific research on uh, aerial fo- photographs. This is guy Craig Disher, mm-hmm. who spent, I mean, I, hundreds of hours at, at the National Archives you know, filming film, you know, filming negatives and, and filming. Uh, taking photos of of aerial photographs that the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, and all those would take pictures, and you know th- these assets are available to clubs. But and you can see when those assets are available and utilized, what the outcome is versus places that didn't do it. And it's a shame. I mean, I'm not going to name some of these courses or architects who were involved. But the you know if if the goal is to historically restore something. In terms of William Flynn, those assets are around. I don't know to what effect, you know, to how much that's around for Rainer courses or Tilling Hess courses or uh, Rainer Ross. Barely anything. That's what I thought. You know, you look at the landforms that, that Rainer built, and I think of, uh, you know, uh, Pit, um, uh, Fox Chapel, for instance. You know, you could see where the where the greens extended to because the 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 tie-ins are are not as natural looking as 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 a, as a lot of places so um you know in flynn you you know you and i could walk around and and, and get a you know we have a critical you know experienced eye to find these things but a lot of clubs you know it's it's not that not that simple um but i i hope that if the mission is to do a historical restoration that people would you know try to do the research you know, it's hard for these architects that are traveling all over the place and managing a lot of different golf courses to spend the hundred or so hours that are needed to really do a, a historical. Um, you think with how much money they spend and how much money they get paid that the historical stuff would be kind of a prerequisite. Yeah, some and some and some Seems of the like a be- hundred hours for you know if you're going to spend ten million dollars on a restoration or. Five million dollars on restoration, a hundred hours of research really isn't that much. Yeah, 
That's true. Uh, I, but and I and you know I'm I'm happy to make the, you know use of the, all the materials I have. You know I'm on the archives committee at Marion. Uh, our archives chairman John Capers has done a phenomenal job in developing one of the real great archives and of any private club in the world. And we, you know, it's open to member. It's open to members to 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 make use of the 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 assets, the hard assets, and the digital assets that we've created. But it's also open to anybody, you know, if, as long as you follow the right protocols, to uh, to make use of all the materials we have. And we have over two hundred and thirty thousand digital files. About a third of that's Marion, but you know, there's also digital files on a lot of significant American and worldwide courses, and it's a it's a research. It's it's a it's really a research library, and any and you know, I hope people make use of it. There's, there's one you, you know. Call your book more of a research book than a than a novel. It's not. Yeah, it's not a. It's not a. It. I mean, I don't think I'm a very good writer, but well, uh, no, but nobody thinks they're a good writer. Well, I think it's. Uh, I don't think I am a very writer, good writer. Then you then you probably aren't a good writer. But it it was meant to be. You know, when I when, when Tom and I first started really working on this book. We didn't know the direction it was going to go in. We didn't know what we were going to find or anything like that. But what we what we thought about doing is, you know, clubs, I think modern clubs today, if, if any new golf courses are being built, um, you know, take the take the opinion you know, or take the approach of of documenting the, the work and getting the archi- uh, architect to do videos and, and commentary on, on what they're thinking and, 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 and such. So... Um, I, I, you know, I, I, the, the, you know, I, I take more pride in the book being a resource for people to, you know, have a go-to place for you know, a William Flynn restoration. Well, I, I mean, for me personally, I, I, I bought your book maybe four or five years ago. It was early, only sixteen hundred pages then. <laughs> early days of the fried egg, and for me, it, it was a huge resource. It was something that inspired me to go see more William Flynn oh, really? courses and 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 appreciate some of the stuff so much more like it, it was you know and then also like one of the things that i loved digging into was i grew up in lake bluff um in lake forest he built a course called mill road farm that's oh that's an, the, oh that we yeah, yeah i'd like to talk about that a little bit one of the great courses that uh that no longer exists and it was uh albert lasker a, a rich guy who had an estate in lake forest who couldn't get into onwensia or I don't probably think anywhere else anywhere the- in Lake Forest and uh, and decided to to just build his own golf course and hired Flynn and it was allegedly as you said in your book the Oakmont of the Midwest. It, yeah, it was it was seven thousand yards in the nineteen twenties. There was a I think Lasker had a standing uh, wager, not really wager, but he would you know he was going to pay somebody you know with the first pro to. Or first golfer to break par, and it took years for somebody to do it. I think it was Tommy Armour. That, Tommy Armour, yeah, yeah, that did it, and uh, it was it was an interesting. I mean, I don't know that area very well. Thousand bucks, I think five hundred or a thousand, something like that. Which was, was then a, a large sum yeah, of money right. in the late twenties. Well, Lasker was super rich, but um, you know that. I mean, the topography it's, it's relatively flat around very, there. Very flat. So, so what does Flynn Chicago. do? What does Flynn do in, in flat areas? He he uses more. Uh, bunkers to, to to create interest. If you think about Shinnecock, where there's a lot of topography, there's not a lot of bunkering. But you know where there's not much going on, and especially say the sixth hole, for instance, that's about as flat as it gets on the course. 
Look at the bunkering in the sandy waste areas that he put in there. Yeah, eight too. Yeah, would be another good example. Mm-hmm. Everybody always talks about nine through uh, eleven at Shinnecock, and I always say, "Well, what about eight? <laughs> Eight's a great hole, and it's a, and and you know it's sort of a counterintuitive hole, which Flynn did quite a lot of. Where really the ideal uh, line of play is on the outside of the dog leg. Mm-hmm. So when you talked about courses playing longer, if you got to play on the outside of a dog leg, you're adding, you know. Yeah, yardage all the time like that also like 13 at shinnecock would be another example which is a, that's a great hole that nobody talks hole about that you see a lot of other places um and is you know similar holes uh another one would be 12 at rolling green would fit mm-hmm. that where you know you play to the outside there of the dog leg you do and, that yeah you do that fair amount at rolling green mm-hmm um, I, I just think his courses are enjoyably difficult. I mean, we talked about this earlier today. You, you know, you and I can design a difficult golf course, but who'd want to play it? You know, maybe we could do it. Maybe if we collaborate, we do better. And here's anybody can make a golf course hard. That right. is, that is, but very few can make a golf course that's uber challenging for a really good player, but still playable for the regular player. That that was, and, yeah. And I mean, Shinnecock's the perfect example of that. Like from what I've heard, it's it's a far more enjoyable course for a low trajectory player, such as a senior or a lady or a junior, than National Golf Links, which most male, you know. 10 handicaps and less would consider one of the most fun golf courses in the world. Shinnecock, which is a torture chamber, as we see for the pros, as they, you know, complain whenever they go there. I think pros complain wherever they are, they complain. Well, anywhere that they, they, that things don't go the way it normally goes on, on their tour, um, they complain. But at Shinnecock, you know, that golf course is as hard as it can get for a really good player and and then for you know an average player who plays along the ground it's far more enjoyable than the course across the street oh i agree because you know i've seen uh, i've I've played shinnecock many times i haven't played national very many times but uh you could see you know women in their 80s playing shinnecock and enjoying it like and, and you know having fun it is an enjoyably difficult golf course the more precise you get the more penalty you have for missing i mean you you see the short grass areas around the greens which is something that flynn was a early advocate for it's unfortunate that many flynn courses do not have those short grass areas around greens well the certainly the ones that were done before the mid-20s he didn't do that very much but then it started you know you saw you can and and that's how the book is written in chronological order you can you know you can See the growth and the, and the and you know the, the evolution of his design theories. It's pretty. It's it's really pretty interesting. Those short grass areas at Shinnecock, which were recently restored, um, create a lot of interesting uh, decision making for the really good players. But for high handicappers or you know or or uh, people with um, you know the the. That that have uh, difficulty hitting out of rough, the um, the, uh, the the short grass areas are much more you know uh, playable for the for the high handicappers. You know they could use their putter if they you know worry about chipping yips like I've seen them be going through these days. I got the chunk and, and skull down really well, but um, 
uh, you know, to me, Shinnecock is the high watermark in, in of of that era of golf course design because it is challenging to the best players and enjoyable to the to to the all classes of golfers. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the that that is the uh, the essence of great golf architecture. So how? Um- I guess yeah. Real quick on that, the the U.S. Open, like the first ten minutes of the U.S. Open or twenty minutes of the U.S. Open, proved that with with players playing the first and the tenth hole and where the ball was going on both of them and just the uh, the sheer carnage right off the bat <laughs> of what short grass uh, does around greens. Yeah, to good players. I, I, I agreed, and uh, you know I was kind of curious to see because you know before that there was you know rough really close to the greens, and that's sort of how the USGA liked to set up their golf courses. It's how they still like to set up their yeah. golf courses. So so great credit to Charles Stevenson and and the the board and the and the, the green committee and, and at, at Shinnecock. They were dedicated to putting to doing a historical restoration to to uh, you know reclaiming the interest and the the shot uh, varieties that uh, that those those kind of short grass areas provide. It's fun. Because you don't have to just you know take a sixty degree wedge out of the rough near the near and try to pop up the ball and you know there's all different kinds of shots you can hit. All right, before we uh, we get you out of here, we, we that's it. Th- we'll have know, to come back. I know. Well, this is this is the first you okay. know the first of the Flynn Flynn Chronicles or something the Flynn findings the saga. We can, we can come up with some alliteration. <laughs> alliteration might be getting a little overused, but but the first of the first of them. Um, before we get out of here, it, what what's the Flynn course that you haven't seen that you most like to see? Cherry Hills. Okay, yeah, that yeah, it seems like one you got to get to. Yeah, and and you know, it's I just ca- haven't been be to very, De- I haven't I mean, been to Colorado. Most of my travel is hard to get to Denver. I don't. I mean, I I, I you know I, I know it's highly regarded. I you know some, and there's some interesting holes there. I don't know how it stacks up versus the other Flynn's in in say Philadelphia. Or Pepper Pike, or you know, or cer- certainly Indian Creek, Brookline. We haven't talked about Brookline. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. Can we talk? The U.S. Opens next year there. Yeah, that's right. I, what what was Flynn's involvement there? I, I'm I this is on my list, but I'm unorganized as always, and you know. <laughs> well, he uh, you know f- coming from Boston, it was you know I'm sure it was a, com- a commission that he was you know thrilled to get. Uh, early, you know, they were going to expand the golf course. It was 18 holes. They wanted to expand the golf course. It's a big membership. Well, I think it's a big membership. It's a yeah. big club, anyway. It is a big. Membership. And um, there's probably a, a demand for uh, for more golf, just like Marion had to, you know, expand into their West Course. But um, Donald Ross did a plan originally. That you know, a couple of years later, Flynn did a plan, and Flynn was the Flynn plan was chosen. Most people think that. Uh, that the uh, original eighteen holes were intact, and then the, the uh, new nine was the primrose. the primrose nine was was a separate uh, golf course. But in fact, Flynn designed uh, nine new holes, but created three separate nines that were mixtures of uh, the new holes and and the and the established holes. And the on the established holes, he redesigned many of them. So uh, there's there was quite a lot of Flynn there, but you know they've had a lot of architects in in the interim. Too, and uh, you know some of that Flynn stuff isn't there anymore. I haven't been back to see Gill's work there, but I'm I'm excited to do that. Um, 
I think some of the interesting holes, you know, some of the interesting landforms are really on the on the Primrose Nine. Yeah, that par five that will be the oh, the uphill par five. Yeah, yeah the way that I forget the Himalayas. I think they call it. Um, it is just yeah that that hole screams William Flynn. Yeah, like they, it seems like it's just taken out of Philly and and put into a Boston environment. Yeah, one thing we should talk about some at some point is these interrupted fairways that Flynn liked to do. Mm-hmm. That. Most clubs didn't make, either didn't want to see it built or, or got rid of it, but there, there was some of that at, at at Brookline. But the downhill par three, par four, I'm sorry, with the pond on the right, is a great golf hole too. Mm-hmm. I forget, I don't even, you know, I, the the routing progression has been changed so much, and it's going to be different for the 22 Open as also as well. Yeah. But you know, you look at the bunkering, you look at some of the greens. It you know, it, it screams William Flynn. Yeah, yeah, just some of the the way the the lands used. It's, yeah. Reminiscent. I think that that's one of the things with the with the country club at Brookline. Like the highs are really high out there because of the just the topographical interest um, and the rocky outcroppings yeah, and stuff like I mean, that. It's, it's really rocky, cool, super cool. It's it's just a it's a really neat place. So, so Flynn did two two the country clubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how about uh, that? Brookline and Pepper Pike. They're they're confusing. Where can people get your book? Um. I think I, I, I have a, a, a Facebook page, but I hardly ever go on Facebook. <laughs> Probably the best way, if they're really interested, is just to email me. Mm-hmm. Is, that, I mean, is, that, is it okay to give my email yeah, address? Yeah, give it away. You're gonna, you know, people are hopefully going to email you. I hope so. It, it mean, might, you're going to get probably a lot of emails from people at Flynn courses. <laughs> That's great. I'm, I'm happy to get it out there. The more people know about Flynn, the more people, you know, even in green committees and stuff like that, the, the better off their restorations are going to be if they realize these assets are available and, and we'll make them certainly available to them. But my email address is W S Morrison, M O R R I S O N at hotmail.com. It's a digital book. It's, it's wonderful. A PDF. Yeah. It's uh, I, one of the things I love about it is that the, you can use the control F function whenever you need to, you just hit control F or command F and it's a find. And like, oh. if I'm, if I'm it want to, you know, I've I've read most of it. I don't. I haven't read all of it. I've well, definitely you've looked, read more than Tom Paul has. I've looked through almost all of it. And um, and if I ever am thinking, you know, want to see something, I just hit Control F and type the course name in. That's and what's it, great about a searchable PDF. Yeah, and it it just it makes the book a lot smaller. Well, the, well, in terms of making things bigger, you know, having that on a computer screen and looking at the aerial photographs, the ground oh. photographs, and the drawings, the drawings are pieces of art. Yes. And you can really study them and, and see what, you know, what was planned, what was built, and figure out what, what's, what's there now. And that's really the only analytics that you need to, to, do, to do a restoration. Mm-hmm. Here's a question for you. Can I ask a question? Yeah. What course of Flynn's that you haven't played or haven't seen would you like to see? Oh man, That's, probably. I mean, Cherry Hills, Indian Springs, Indian the, Creek, or Indian Creek. God, Indian Springs. I'm losing my mind. Um, yeah, I, think I mean, Flynn did a Indian Springs. He re- redesigned Donald Ross's Indian Springs outside of D.C. I, I do. I, you know, there's a bunch of them that I want to see. I you got to go to you got to see Catanset. I, I you got to see Indian Creek. I want to see. I, I want you know, place around here that I've driven by a bunch <laughs> of times that I want to see is McCall. Oh, that yeah. So that that's an that, that was a redesign of a Ross course. Yeah, I, you know, I've just driven by and I've seen some of the greens at the bottom of that big hill. Boy, for a guy from and, Chicago, you've been around Philly. 
I just I do, I pay attention to stuff. I drive by, I see stuff, and I look at every time I drive by McCall, I like rubberneck. It's really unsafe, and it's usually at like before sunrise. And I'm looking, I see grounds crew out there mowing, and I see the big hill and these greens at the bottom of it, and I think to myself, man, that that place looks that, wild. That is, you know, it's a it's in it's uh, in the city. And there's another course, Bala Country Club, that's also in the city, or Bala Golf Club, sorry, that's also in the city. Really short courses, but those courses are hard to score on. You can... It's amazing. The way I understand it is that public play can be, or public play can play those at certain times. McCall. McCall, McCall, at least. Yeah, McCall. I don't know about Bala's, you know, that's a course that's, you know, ups and downs in terms of... uh, I, I don't think those places doing. are are necessarily like on the inaccessible scale. I I think with a little bit of work, you can go. Just about anybody can find their way onto those. Two. Yeah, you know, like that that you know, like Shinnecock. That on the next uh, the accessible skills low, but that's the thing. It's like some of this stuff you can there there are attainable flins that you can go see. It's not like. You know, if you want to go see a CB McDonald course and you don't have any connections, like good luck. But yeah. like, I, I think you can, there's places that you, that can be had in the Flynn, you know, um, directory that can, you can sh- see great Flynn architecture. If you're say from California and you mm-hmm. don't have any friends in Philadelphia. Right. Well, somebody's playing, you know, some guests are playing these courses because, you know, some of these courses, it's a member and three guests. Mm-hmm. Every tea time, just about. Yeah, yeah. But, I, I the other one, I, I want to see the Cascades too. That's one. That's I a fascinating see. course. If you know what was really, you know what, that it wasn't just draped on the land. That it really was an engineering marvel to create that thing. Mm-hmm. Moving a stream that uh, that is a catch basin for fifty square miles, for instance, stuff like that. It's kind of cool. Yeah, and uh, uh, and, and the greens. I mean, you, the, you know, Flynn's greens are amazing. They look simple, but they're really complicated, and they really are, you know, they're, they're, they're long interplays of slopes that makes it hard to read and hard to judge speed sometimes. And they're always benched into hills, which obscure the, you know, because he did so many, he built it into so many landforms. What happens is then by doing small little things, you can create these subtleties where that, the green actually runs away when it looks like it's going, you're putting yeah, straight uphill. Yeah, perceptual miscues. Yeah. I mean, there's so many of them that they have to be done by design. And there's some of them that are replicated, like the third green at Rolling Green and the fourth green at the Cascades. They're very similar where the landform around that green is steeply downhill. So you change that pitch a little bit. So it, it really, in effect, is still front to back, but your eye makes it seem like it's steeply back to front. And you know, putts in one direction go way past the hole and putts in the other direction are way short because it's hard to perceive the, you know, the, you can trick the mind. Yeah. And yeah. if you, and if you, and Flynn was really good at uh, manipulating the top lines of bunkers to accentuate that mis misread, you know, and where, where that comes from, what, how you do that, spending a lot of time on site. Like that's the it, stuff that the best yeah. architect, you know, and we see it today with the, with the architects that spend the most time on site, generally those little details are in that, you know, people will roll their eyes when I go on, you know, I rants about little things, but you know, those are the things that make golf courses great versus good. 
and timelessly great too. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, hey, everybody check it out. The Nature Faker. Uh, they can email you. Yeah, wsmorrison at hotmail.com. Or there is a Facebook page, but I don't check it very often. I think I got it through the Facebook page. Did you really? Ago. Well, maybe yeah. I should check it more often. I, 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 yeah, I, I'll have to find my receipt, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming uh, This on. is enjoyable. I don't know how long we talked, but it went by in like in an instant. Today's episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. As a uh, reminder, sign up for the Fried Egg Newsletter. Will Knights does an awesome job. It's three days a week. Just go to thefriedegg.com and you can sign up there. It keeps you uh, up to date on everything going on in golf. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Fried Egg Podcast, and we will see you soon. Thank you.